Welcome, and thanks for joining us. This is the Coding Compliance Podcast, the good, bad, and ugly, where we break down the complexities of billing and coding in healthcare and discuss how to operate and hopefully excel in an industry imposed with complex and ever-changing regulations. Here are your hosts, our authority on compliance, Ross Ronan, and coding experts, Neil Green and Mark Babst. Welcome to the good, the bad, and the ugly, the Coding Compliance Podcast, episode number five. Um, on the phone with uh, Neil Green and Mark Babst. Welcome and good afternoon. Hi. Good afternoon. You know, we've been talking a lot in our last podcasts about auditing and, and monitoring and, and what the importance of it is. Um, you know, when you look at the whole program from either a coding compliance standpoint or any other compliance perspective, auditing and monitoring is is one of the, the seven elements and roots of what, what you should be doing from that perspective. Um, but what happens if you don't remediate? I mean, you have all these audit findings, you have all these results. What, what happens if you don't do anything with them? So let's talk a little bit today about the importance of, of remediations and action plans with uh, post-audit and what should you do? Um, when you guys look at uh, what remediation is, uh, what do you typically look at from a post-audit post, uh, plan and, and why would you ever, ever need to remediate anything? Well, so <laughs> the first thing is that uh, uh, if you read the April 2019 Department of Justice uh, memorandum on coding compliance plans, it makes it very clear that uh, what was once sort of thought to be, oh, if you just uh, sat down with the providers and uh, or coders and had a discussion, that would be enough. They actually want... Uh, you to go through a a rigorous process to demonstrate not only that you did those steps of uh, education, but that uh, they were absorbed and changed behavior so that you can uh, have a representation to uh, whether it's Medicare or uh, Medicaid programs or anyone else that uh, you in fact um, corrected the problems that you found in the uh, active auditing. And uh, I think this is probably the single most significant area where clients fall down and their plans are not strong enough. And um, it's the thing that we work on the most with our clients to create the action plan around what do you do after you educate, which is the first step. And I, I think that most of uh, the people who have compliance plans get the educational part. They just don't have all the steps that you really need after that. Yeah, and it's it's funny because when we when I when I sit in front of boards and we present, we'd usually do about three sections in our board reports. One of those is your audit findings, um, and uh, you know typically they're done by third parties, and oftentimes they're they're done by you all. Um, one of the number one things they ask me point blank as a compliance officer is, "What'd you do about it? How'd you fix it?" What was the outcome of, and how does this not recur down the road? Regardless of the fact that it's required from the DOJ and OIG standpoint, there's company leadership and boards who stand and who stand up and say, "Look, I need you to fix these issues before before they go down the road of of creating 
more issues and bigger issues that you can't get get out of. Um, you know, Mark, when you talk about optimizing revenue from a from a uh, remediation standpoint, you know, how do you do that from a making sure that you can make the most money from the uh, compliant coding standpoint, as well as not have any any exposures from from your remediation plans. Well, well, that's accomplished through accuracy in coding, and the only way to determine if your coding is accurate is to audit it, and um, and and then to check, as Neil said, that any errors in the coding have been corrected, and the only way to determine that is to do a re-audit, um, and it it can increase revenue because a lot of uh, providers uh, undervalue their services, um, or in fact, they miss separately billable services. And that's often because the rules around the coding um, are, are uh, more than enough to fill up a couple of uh, old Manhattan phone books. I mean, the rules are just dense, thick, uh, endless, and um, boring as hell, but essential for uh, for, for for both uh, compliance and and revenue optimization. Um, so uh, it, it's it's like a coin, and you want to stand the coin on the edge. If it falls one way, you're in in trouble with the uh, the government for submitting false claims. If it falls on the other side, um, you're leaving money on the table. So uh, what you want to do is uh, is be accurate and uh, and identify everything that's separately billable. Use the right modifiers um, for each service that requires a modifier, and make sure that the diagnosis uh, that you selected presents the medical necessity for that service. When we talk about like essentially who needs remediation, I think that that's a really important thing to explore because oftentimes um, programs will do an audit and they'll have their monitoring program in place and they'll just take at face value whatever those audit findings say without doing a, an in-depth analysis of what may be the root cause of those specific issues, right? So if it's, if it's one specific coder, if it's... Um, <clears throat> if it's one specific code across the board, right? We have lots of different specialties. We talked about those in some of our other podcasts. Um, but when you talk about who needs remediation from, from a compliance perspective, and sometimes the compliance department can sit between an, an RCM process as well as um, a third party auditing firm to really determine what exactly is the are the issues here and making sure that the remediation does take place. But when you look at the who needs remediation, do you really drill down into the specific aspects of what's causing the errors, whether there's overcoding or undercoding? How do you look at it from the standpoint of what is a systemic exposure? How do we focus on remediation? And, 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 and who really needs that type of um, focused, whatever that is. We'll talk about that in a second, but but who needs it right off the bat? Well, uh, well if I can start with... Let me just... Go ahead, yeah, Mark. Okay, if I can start with uh, with, with this. Um, uh, 
we have to look at each uh, claim. Is it a clean claim or not? That that is the the, the defi definition of, of accuracy yeah, on a per claim basis. So um, what I frequently tell clients is that. Hey, Mark, not to interrupt you real quick, but, but talk yes. a little bit about what a clean claim is, like because I think that's very important to understand what that is before we kind of go down that road. Well, a clean claim is a claim that is accurate. And uh, in terms of all of the uh, information it contains from the, uh, uh, the patient's name, their, their uh, address, their, their uh, either insurance or Medicare or Medicaid uh, numbers, and, the, 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 and importantly, that it is coded correctly, correctly with the proper CPT codes, modifiers, uh, and linked diagnostic codes. Um, and th that's what constitutes a clean claim. And um, uh, the, the registration folks at the front desk generally are responsible for the demographics of the patient's name and, and uh, in insurance coverage or third-party coverage. And either the provider or the coder is responsible for the coding of the claim. Um, what what I like to, to do is to tell our, uh, our audit clients to uh, look at the coding of the claim uh, and divide the, the, uh, them into uh, the, the coders or the providers into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and you can set that th th those uh, uh, divisions wherever you want. I usually say you can start with the old uh, uh, grade school, 90% uh, is an A, 90% plus is an A, 80% plus is a B, 70% um, plus is a C. You don't need to go further than that. And that constitutes the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good um, are people who get in the 90s, which is, uh, in fact, the industry standard to get 90. Um, the bad are people who get 80 to 90, and these are people who generally get it. They, they might need some assistance in certain uh, aspects of coding, such as modifiers or diagnoses, or, uh, or they might need clarification about surgical coding, uh, what's bundled and what's not bundled. And, um, and, and they're educable. They're, you're able to bring somebody who's at 80% up to 90 relatively quickly. You've got to recheck it to make sure that, it, that whatever remediation you've done takes, but they're, they're educable. It's the ugly people who score below 70%. These are the ones that, that can get the entire practice in deep, deep trouble. The, um, because the entire practice shares responsibility for it. Um, and these are the ones who um, uh, either don't want to learn it or refuse to learn it or don't want to be bothered by it. They say everything I do is a level three or, uh, you know, and one size does not fit all. Uh, so these are the people who need to have their coding pencils taken away immediately because they are causing exposure to the practice. Neil, I'm sorry, uh, you were going to say something? Yeah, so I was actually going to start off with the premise of, you know, how uh, 
healthcare system is organized in terms of coding. And I think because Ross asked, you know, how do you identify the systemic problems? So part of what a lot of health systems today do, and I think this causes great um, vulnerability, is they have physicians code all their E&M services. So the first thing this does is this turns what would be a group of coders into literally, it could be a thousand or 2000 coders, each with their own understanding of how to level services, what is in, isn't included in their dictation and coding of uh, the type of practice that they have. And so this really leads to problems. And I see this over and over again. Uh, we approach a practice where doctors are doing the E&M coding typically. And right now I'm talking under 2020 rules because that's where we have our experience today. But I don't expect it to change all that much as we go into 2021. And, and uh, you will find for sure that uh, 20 to 25, even more in some practices, percent of the doctors that do coding are struggling. They fall into that ugly category that Mark was talking about. And a lot of that has to do with doctors not going to school to become a coder. That, that's not their job. Now, does any doctor have the intellectual capability of doing that? Absolutely. Is that something that they want to focus on? No, they want to treat patients. So oftentimes you'll hear compliance people say, um, you know, Dr. So-and-so, uh, you know, just has the attitude that you know, you're forcing me to do this. I don't want anything to do with it, but you're forcing me to do it. And uh, uh, healthcare organizations that set themselves up in that manner with no alternatives for those types of providers are really setting themselves up for a big kick in the pants. And um, unfortunately, we spend a lot of time talking to organizations about this. That's part of the action plan, Ross, that you were referring to, like what happens after these steps is like, okay, now you've identified these deficiencies. What are you gonna do about it other than train somebody and re-audit them? It doesn't, it can't stop there because you're going to have these types of personalities where somebody's going to say, I went to medical school to become a doctor, not a coder. If I wanted to be a coder, I would have gone and gotten a certificate in coding. And, and so uh, I, this is further exacerbated today by uh, bonus systems and healthcare systems are, as you all pointed out, are intelligent. And so if they know that they can get more money <laughs> by being able to uh, put themselves in a situation of unbundling and nobody catches that because they don't audit rigorously enough, uh, they're putting the organization at risk in order for them to game the system and get more money. This happens a lot. And, and, and I don't see that as much happening uh, with coders as I do with doctors. Coders, you tend to see trying to follow rules because that's what they've set up as a profession. They may have deficiencies and skill sets uh, because they've been put in untenable roles. For instance, I have several clients that they don't try to match up a coder based upon what their past experience in coding is rather than on the opening that they have in their healthcare system. So I've seen people take pathology coders and as a reward, turn them into orthopedic coders. That doesn't work. 
And so um, those types of decisions that people make all over the country are things that exacerbate uh, errors. And uh, so if you don't start off with giving your system, your healthcare system, every opportunity to succeed, um, then you're going to end up in trouble. Yeah, so a couple of things. Uh, you went through a lot of stuff, <laughs> Neil, and a lot of good things to, to talk about there. Uh, you know, until we get into value-based reimbursement, probably fee-for-service coding needs to, you know, be left with the experts and as are the coders who who read those books and those regulations for, you know, hours and hours on end. Um, <clears throat> as it relates to like the compliance plan for you, you hit a little bit on the RVU um, process that's been set up by the government and approved and that's essentially a um, reimbursement based upon uh, the, the levels of service and time you've spent with each patient and how the actual coding goes through and you get the providers get reimbursed in that way. You know, oftentimes in your compliance plan, you need to make sure that your reimbursement, whether it's for your coding and billing company or your coders in general, are not based on some sort of model that represents a, a level of service uh, reimbursement. So you get a high, you get more money for every higher level you do. And that's generally been frowned upon, you know, drastically by the OIG and the DOJ. So in your compliance plan for remediation, you need to make sure that no one has an incentive to unbundle, to upcode, and, and to, to create all those kind of problems. Uh, so secondly, on that note, from the standpoint of, of remediation, um, making sure that um, you know, there are thresholds that people abide by to make sure that they, they are doing the right thing and, and abiding by whatever is in your compliance plan. I fully, fully agree and support with that. Um, in addition to, you know, who gets remediated in your compliance plan, you know, there should be different actions um, in your compliance plan that says, hey, this is how you take care of the remediation process. Um, one of those is one of the seven elements of an effective compliance program by the OIG. And that's really, uh, you know, having corrective action plans for individuals who have caused issues or has caused problem, have caused problems. Um, when you look at remediation plans, what's the number one thing that, let's just rank them, you know, easiest to hardest to be able to, to put into place for remediation. What do you think the easiest thing is to do right off the bat? It's just a no brainer. You, no matter what happens, this is the first thing you do. What would that be? This is Mark. Um, well, the, the easiest thing to do is to be is to assign the coding uh, uh, to a competent coder um, that will immediately correct the problem uh, and uh, immediately reduce compliance exposure and optimize reimbursement. That's the easiest. Um, uh, following that might be um, trying to educate the, the person um, who is uh, has made the mistakes that the audit uncovered. Um, and and that, that's again where we want to look at you know the, the, the degradation of um, not the degradation, the, the, the demarcation of, of the various levels, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because some of the, uh, uh, of them uh, at the lowest level just, might not have the, uh, the the background, the education, the the knowledge 
to, to do this properly without extensive training, auditing, training, auditing. So, so th those are the ones who, who should not be coding. The, uh, the, the people in, in the second tier, the bad tier, the middle tier, um, these are educable. These are, these are people who are a little bit off and who could be brought up. And, and so, so um, the, the, uh, the uh, remediation uh, actions need to be uh, designed to address what's wrong, what, what, the, what the audit has found, both on the individual encounter basis and on the gross high level. You know, if you're making one mistake over and over and over again, that's fixing one mistake and you get a good mark. But if you're making lots of different mistakes, um, then you have a different and much more serious problem. Does that make sense? It does. And and when you talk about education, you know, there's a couple of different formats to do. Do you bring in someone from the outside who's got a lot of experience, has a has has done quite a few audits, has has essentially defended people in front of the government, or do you really create this robust internal education program? And I think that there's two different kinds of education, right? So there's documentation education so that you can actually go back to the clean claim uh, perspective that you talked about a second ago, Mark. And then also the coding perspective, which which says, hey, uh, so the first one is provider education, the second one would be coder education about how to assign a, a correct code. Do you really look internally or do you look externally for those resources? Um. Well, um, some of both. It depends upon the, uh, the the depth of resources of the individual practice. If it's a smaller practice, um, five, six, seven, eight doctors, perhaps, they don't have, uh, and particularly in a multi-specialty practice, they're, they're not going to have a compliance and educational staff that uh, is, is capable of, of handling the different specialties. Um, but they could be given by a third party or an independent outside uh, auditor the um, information they need to use to educate their doctors. So I, it's, uh, and other practices have invested very large amounts and have um, uh, fairly large uh, compliance offices with um, uh, multiple both auditors and educators and uh, working with them would be a, a t very different experience. They, they have the ability to take a, a third party's audit and do the follow-up education with their providers to make sure that the provider documentation is thorough com and complete, and also take the um, coding errors back to the, um, uh, to the coders, if they're separate coders or if they're their providers. And um, and bring those to their attention. So it's 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 a combination uh, based upon the resources of the uh, of the practice. Yes, so I, I've seen in health systems that um, you know, as Mark alluded to, uh, some health systems really invest in their uh, coding compliance staff and their audit team and educators, and some don't. And um, a lot of organizations look at it as a non-revenue producing uh, aspect of running a group practice. And because of that, often undervalue what it can do. It can save you a lot of money in the case of having to do a recoupment. Um, and lots of organizations have learned that the hard way. 
um, and that includes universities as well as large health systems have had to give back tremendous sums of money. And, uh, and, and the other part of that is that it, it's hard and becomes more complex the more subspecialties you have to have expert expertise in each one of those areas. And so, you know, it, I would say that part of the complexity of the organization really drives how you get your resources and what they're willing to spend in terms of uh, in-house uh, arrangement versus uh, using vendors to be able to help them. Um, I must say, uh, I, I, be in this day and age of combination in healthcare industries, where the entities just get larger and larger, they tend to forget that they're getting larger and larger and leave the compliance, education, and auditing teams at the exact same size they were originally. And, and that's a huge mistake. So, so we've done all this education, right? Whether it's internal or external, and we've, we've, we've really um, evaluated whether or not it's working. Well, back up. We, we're, we've given the actual education and training. What's the next thing you do? How do you test this to make sure it works? And 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 I'm I'm a big fan of of making sure that you test way after your education and training because you don't want to be auditing the same things you audited before, and telling the same story. So, um, you know, what's your next step here? How do you? Re what's the next process for remediation? Well, I think Mark already alluded to, which is you have to re-audit. I mean, that's the essential element that so many groups just fail to do. And, um, you know, we, we had several clients till the DOJ memorandum came out that would audit doctors every two years or every three years. And, um, you know, obviously that's totally inadequate and the DOJ guidance clearly addresses that so that you need to be auditing all your service lines, not just what you think are the most vulnerable areas in your practice but you need to be auditing all your service lines and you need to do it at least annually. And then based upon those results, those people that are failing cause you to remediate, which means go through that entire process of education, teaching, and then get back to a re-audit in a timely manner, which they talk about. And so um, a lot of the organizations, you know, have considered that to be a year or more. That, that also doesn't fly any longer. So um, I think if an organization really wants to be safe, that what they want to do is audit. They want to define how many audits a coder or doctor in the practice gets to fail before they take a, an additional step. And so, um, you know, there are practices that we've encountered that they've audited for you know, 10 years, and they know that Dr. Smith is uh, going to fail every time. And that, that is, becomes a huge problem for that entity. Because I have documented evidence that you know what was going on, and that the doctor was failing, and you were failing to correct that behavior. So auditing is important. But again, every plan should have some definition of a final step if that doesn't work and, and the doctor continues or coder continues to fail. 
And we typically recommend you either get a new coder or you end up uh, getting a additional external resource that you can validate knows how to code for that. And on the re-audit standpoint, I think it's really important to, again, we talked a little bit about analyzing the audit findings so that you know what you're dealing with at that time period. Is it systemic? Is it one issue? Is it one code or whatever it may be? I do think that your follow-up audits should reflect that analysis. So should your education and so should your follow-up audits. So if you do a uh, overarching umbrella audit the first time, then maybe your follow-up audit subsequently down the road becomes this overarching umbrella audit of all your codes. But your follow-up specifically for remediation will focus on that issue that has caused the problem. Um, and that can be a focus audit, it can be a probe audit, it doesn't have to be a statistically valid random sample, it can be something to determine whether or not that problem has been remediated and fixed at that point in time. Uh, I find that to be a very uh, accurate way and adequate way of making sure that you've mitigated and remediated the issues. We're just kind of wrapping this up with somebody who, you know, in your remediation plans, you, you both of you touched on it um, over and over again that at some point in time, you know, we have the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the ugly just sometimes just doesn't get it. They never meet the standards. You audit them and audit them and audit them. You know, at some point in time, you have the liability and the culpability as a as a company as a practice as a university and an institution to say we knew about this we had to do something about it as soon as possible right um uh, from our remediation standpoint if they just don't get it you know first thing mark said was take it out of their hands right you take it out of their hands and then do what where do you put it who gets to take control of that um on the back end you send it to your good coders and then all of a sudden have you overburdened your good coders uh so that they can't do a good job so so how do you really take it out of somebody's hands if they just can't get it what's what's the logical step well uh, in today's uh, environment with electronic medical records it's uh, logistically very easy uh, to uh, have a coder uh, do the coding, read the reports, and 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 uh, do the coding accurately. You have to have a skilled coder for that subspecialty, as Neil mentioned before. Uh, um, but you, it's relatively easy to take the coding out of the doctor's hands. They, um, and it. it it can be very effective. There, there's uh, there, there are companies that that work on a per report basis, such as ours, um, so that uh, the uh, practice is is knows that its uh, its coding is being done accurately. Um, we've seen some practices that actually charge the uh, the doctor uh, who doesn't pass the test um, uh, again and again, charge them for the uh, for uh, our company's fee so that they're paying for it. And, and, and that, that accomplishes two things. It makes the, the, the good coders, they don't, they don't resent the fact that they're doing their own coding um, because this bad code, the ugly coder, as you will, is is paying for his um, his the problem he's created. He's paying for the the, the corrective action, um, and it all and 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 that 
ugly coding provider also gets might feel it's worth it you know it's it's worth a couple hundred dollars a month for me to have my coding done accurately and get those damn compliance people off my back so so it it could be a win-win doing it that way um and um the other side which we really haven't given enough discussion to is the documentation deficiency and i know neil wants to talk about curing documentation deficiencies which uh, can be spotted by coders neil yeah so um one of the things that we oftentimes recommend to our clients is that you know if documentation doesn't improve as a result of education which is of course the first step to try to improve it but if you don't see that in a subsequent audit and physician or uh, provider is just not getting it done properly that we suggest that they use a scribe and lots of practices these days actually do that and it's a wonderful way to be able to have a trained person who can document um, things more efficiently, uh, and um, and we we definitely uh, subscribe to that theory that you know the more you can get documentation to substantiate coding, the better the coding is going to be, and the uh, actually you get another win from the uh, medical legal side, because typically where doctors get in trouble is they haven't documented all in their charts when they get in a cart and things go wrong. So uh, it, it has a double positive effect. And, and I also wanted to allude back to uh, Mark's comments about what happens in those situations where you are trying desperately to find that right coding alternative and and, and you do um, th the beauty of being able to find that is you can both reduce liability on one hand and also oftentimes as mark started the conversation today find nuggets of reimbursement opportunity and and that uh, happens in virtually every assignment we get and so while somebody may engage us to help them with compliance, um, it, we may end up making that a, a winner for them on the revenue side and vice versa. Somebody may be engaging us to help them get their revenue uh, improved and we end up helping them identify areas where they were potentially getting into trouble. So um, again, it, it's always got two sides. <laughs> and, and and not just revenue improvement, but process improvement, right? I mean, if the documentation yes. is better, it's inclusive of everything that needs to be, it makes your revenue cycle process 10 times more effective and efficient, and it leads to capturing of all the revenue that you actually need to capture, right? I, I can't tell you how often we have um, audited um, and I want to use an E&M uh, as an example. Uh, and uh, the doctor coded it as a level four. And we went in and audited it and said it was upcoded. The documentation only supports a level three. 
And in discussing it with the doctor and, and in the educational process, you know, he said, well, I did that. I, I did enough bullets. I, 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 I uh, examined enough different systems and uh, to, to make a level four. And we looked at it and said, yeah, you're right. You did. But you didn't document all those things. It's not in the it's not in the medical record, and so uh, you know essentially they're shooting themselves in the foot with uh, with poor documentation, or, or and um, uh, the, the only way to find it is an audit, and the only way to find out if it's been corrected is regular re-audits because it's far too easy to slip back into your old and evil ways. Well, that is for sure. Um, well, guys, I think this has been a great conversation today, talking about remediation for for your monitoring and auditing program. You know, we talked a little bit about uh, why remediation exists, and that's because of the requirements for the DOJ and the OIG and other enforcement agencies, as well as boards of directors and executives who want to make sure that uh, that they're doing things correctly. You know, who needs it? whether it's the providers who are documenting or the providers who are who are coding or the coders who are coding, who really needs that information and needs that process and then how to do it, you know, through education. And then how do you test for it, which is is really that re-audit functionality. And then, and then finally, which hits both compliance programs as well as, um, you know, an RCM and a, and a coding process is what just happens when you have those coders, those individuals who are not quite understanding how to fix these issues and and mitigate the problems on a go-forward basis. And I think we, we pretty much hit all of those topics today. Uh, any last words for for uh, for the for the group here today or in follow-up? Be safe. <laughs> Sounds great. Well thank you very much for your time and I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Coding Compliance Podcast. The good bad and ugly sponsored by Ronan healthcare consultants and the coding network with our hosts, Ross Ronan, Neil green and Mark Babs. Please tune into iTunes and Spotify on the first Friday of each month for a new episode. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our podcast website or leave us a review.